Well, good morning. I am really glad to be here. I love being with my former students and seeing what God's doing. And I love preaching the Word, so thank you for giving me that privilege. Let me ask you to get your Bibles. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to get your hard copy, your electronic copy, your phone copy, whatever copy you have. And before we ever turn to a passage, I want you just to hold your Bible out in front of you for a minute. Just have it in your hand, have it in your lap. And I want you to get in your mind two numbers as, as we get started. The first one should be easy. The second one may take some work. So with your Bible in your hand, I want you first to get into your mind the number of people who live in your house today. All right, that one should be easy. Yes? For us, it's Pam and I, so two of us. So get that number in your mind. Now here's the second number I want you to get into your mind. The number of Bibles in your house today. The number of copies of the Bible in your house today, whether electronic or hard copy. Take just a second and I watch as you're computing in your, in your heads. How many would say to me, Chuck, we have more Bibles in our house today than we have human beings? Let me see your, let me see your hands. Look around for just a minute. Look around. All right, thank you. Here's why I want you to start there this morning, because I can take you to places all over the world today. I can take you to three billion people who have little or no access to the gospel at all, who have never heard the name of Jesus. I can take you to places where people have just snippets of the Bible in their language, not the whole Bible, just portions of it, as we're working through the process of translation. I can take you to places where people have no copies of the Bible in their language. I can take you to places where there are people who do not have written languages, and we're trying to get the gospel to them. Pam and I have been in places where I remember a number of years ago we were in East Asia, and the brothers and sisters in Christ had one copy of the Bible in their language, and we watched them as they would open it and read it, And each believer would read one verse and then pass it to the next believer who would read another verse. The next believer would read another verse. And they would spend hours just reading the Bible to each other because it's the only copy they had. In fact, on that particular day, they were reading the chapter that we're going to turn to here in just a minute. Meanwhile, you and I have more Bibles than we have human beings. We have the entirety of the Bible, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, in our language, and we have the opportunity to open it and read it and discuss it, and I have the privilege of proclaiming it without threat on our lives. I've been in places where I would teach one day, and we'd have to move to another place the next day, lest we be found out where we were and what we were doing. We come here, I come here, we open the Word We have great freedom to do that. My point is this. You and I, this morning, are really, 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 really blessed. Yes? So we use our time wisely. We go directly into the Word. I want you to go with me to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts, chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, is a text that really is a theme text for my life in that it challenges me and even haunts me a little bit in looking at churches and looking at our lives today, particularly in North America. 
I want you to find your place, Acts 19, verse 11 and following. My title today is The Church That Threatens the Enemy. So we start in verse 11 to get some context, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, pause there, and let me give you the the context. Let me give you the the setting, and then we'll read on. Paul is in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a thoroughly pagan city. In the center of the city is a temple to a a false god, well-known temple. There is so much evil in the city and so many demons in the city that there are professional exorcists coming through the city to cast out demons. These particular exorcists hear that Paul is in the city, and Paul is casting out demons, and Paul has power, and Paul is effective, and so they try to tap into Paul's power. Paul's power is in the name of Jesus. And so these seven exorcists confront a man who has a demon, and they speak to the demon and say to this demon, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out. This time the demon speaks back. Look at verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but read it to me. Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They try to cast the demon out. The demon speaks back, Jesus I know. Jesus I know because he's the Son of God. In fact, read the gospel sometimes and see when Jesus confronts demons, see who speaks first. It's not Jesus, it's the demon who speaks first, who says something like, what are you going to do to us? Don't throw us into the abyss because they know they're done for when Jesus, the Son of God, shows up on the scene. Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. Why did the demon know Paul? Because Paul walked with God in the authority of Christ. And then the demon says to these exorcists, but who are you? If I could could loosely paraphrase, here's what the demon said. Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. You don't scare me. There's nothing in your life that threatens me. Let me tell you why that text challenges me and haunts me at at some level. Because my entire life is about raising up men and women and send them to take the gospel to the nations. To churches throughout North America. To plant churches throughout the world. To go to places where the gospel's never been. To take the gospel of light into the deepest darkness of the world. And I get to see what God's doing around the world. I've seen places where God's power is just falling on people groups. And God is mowing them down for His glory, bringing them to Him. And Then I come back to North America. Let me tell you about churches on our continent. For the most part, our churches are not growing. The stats vary from 80% to 90 to 95% in some cases. Churches in North America are plateaued or declining. You baptize five people this morning. I can take you to thousands of churches that don't do that in a year. As a, as a denomination, as a Southern Baptist Convention, we annually now 
baptize fewer people than we did in 1950. And so, frankly, I look at our churches, I look around, and I can't help but wonder if the demons don't say, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, and you all just keep on doing what you're doing because you don't frighten me anyway. I just wonder. And then I read the book of Acts, and that's where we land this morning. I read the book of Acts, and I find 120 nobodies who gather in an upper room, and the Spirit of God falls on them, and we read of them that they turn the cities upside down for God's glory. They take the gospel to the center of the Roman Empire, and God moves through them. And then I see some exorcists who try to do religious stuff, and they lack the power of God. And I wonder, which are we more like? Are we more like the early church that the gospel's preached, and people are just coming to Jesus every day? The power of God is evident in everything that they do. Or are we more like these Jewish exorcists who are going through the ritual of religion, speaking the right words, but lacking the power of God on them? I think we're more like the exorcist than we are the early church. So the cry of my heart is, the older I get, the more I long for God to do something through our churches that makes hell shake. And that's my challenge to you this morning. I want us to ask the question, what was it about the early church that made hell shake? What was it about these early believers that made it such that The demons knew them by name. I want to walk you through the book of Acts together and show you what this early church was like and challenge you to be that church. So get your pencils ready, get your pen ready, type on your phone, however you're doing this. Here's point number one. You have notes in your bulletin. This early church, the early church was supernaturally united. Talk about the church, what made it different. The early church was supernaturally united. Go with me to the book of Acts chapter 1. You've got your Bible. God has privileged us to have them in our hands. Let's look at them together. Chapter 1. Verse 14. These early believers had gathered in the upper room. They've devoted themselves to prayer. And we read one verse about them in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So here's, the, here's the, one of the first descriptions we read of this early church. They gathered to pray, and they gathered in one accord. They gathered in one spirit, in one heart, in one mind. I'll show you the same thing. Go forward with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Verse 32 this time, and listen to the echo that you hear in this verse. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They were of one heart, one soul. Now bring all this together. One accord, one heart, one soul, one mind. Here's what this early church knew. If they were going to march forward together in the darkness, they had to indeed march forward together. Here's why that strikes me. Think about Jesus' first disciples. Think about the 12 that he called in the Gospels. Let's just do a quick Bible quiz together. Those 
early disciples, did they always get along, yes or no? No. In fact, they're often arguing among themselves, and their argument was about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Two of them wanted the best seats because their mama got involved and spoke to Jesus. We had a fisherman. We had a number of fishermen. We had a tax collector. We had a zealot. They came from different backgrounds. They weren't always on the same page. They didn't always listen to Jesus. They weren't always successful in ministry. They tried to cast a demon out once and couldn't do it. And so we don't always see them united. We don't see them in one accord. But now we do. Something's happened here. Something's happened that's brought them together. In chapter 1, their Lord has been crucified but resurrected. And He has promised them power. And they come in one accord waiting for that. And then the Spirit of God falls on them. And they become one even more so that they can march forward together. This, This ragamuffin group of nobodies... God took, and he made them supernaturally one. I have the privilege of worshiping around the world, and I think about different places this morning. I think about a time when I had the privilege of preaching in, in a Baptist church in Moscow, Russia. And those of you who are my generation, you know how strange that was, because we grew up in a generation when Moscow was the center of the evil empire, and we never dreamed we'd ever have freedom to go there and, and speak the gospel. But then, but then the walls fell, and the doors opened, and we were privileged to go in and, and begin to speak about Jesus in, in that country. And, and I had the privilege that particular Sunday morning of, of speaking the gospel in a very, very formal church, very high platform stage, and the choir actually was up in the balcony in the back, and so you could hear them singing behind you as we sang together. And in this particular church, they told me before the service that at the end of the service, when you finish, the tradition is that you greet the person next to you with a holy kiss. And I don't mean a cheek-to-cheek kiss, I mean a lip-to-lip kiss is the culture. So I'm preaching away, I turn to my left, and standing near me, beside me, is a, an older male Russian pastor. All right, do you get the picture? <laughs> let, let me just tell you something. When you know what's coming when you finish the sermon, you just want to preach forever. Uh, there's, always, there's always more Bible. There's always something else you can teach, but... I knew I had to quit, and so I came to the end. We bowed together for prayer. Somebody else was praying. My young, my young translator, who was right here next to me, he grabbed me by the hand, and he whispered in my ear. And he said, if, if, you, if you don't want to get kissed, run. Run away with me. Uh, and he drug me down the back steps of that church so I didn't have to get kissed at least that time. I remember worshiping in Manila in the Philippines. We were there on Clark Air Base. Clark Air Base was at the time the largest U.S. base in the world. We were there just a couple of weeks before a nearby volcano erupted and destroyed the base. In fact, the ground was shaking as, as we were there. And we brought hundreds of Filipino pastors into the, into the base to train them. And I, I was blessed to get to teach them. And they worshiped together, and the Filipinos raised their hands in worship. And in my church where I grew up in Ohio, you didn't raise your hand in worship unless you had a question. It just didn't. It just wasn't part of our, our tradition at all. So I had never done that. So I'm here with all the Filipino brothers, and, 
and I have a Filipino here and a Filipino here and a Filipino grabbed my hand and another Filipino grabbed my hand here and I knew as we worshiped if their hands were going up, mine were going up too. One went up, another went up. We worshiped God together and God took me to the other side of the earth to show me you can raise your hands and worship and not get struck down. It's my Filipino brothers who showed me that. I remember worshiping in, in West Africa if you've never worshipped with our African brothers and sisters, you simply must. Nobody worships like African brothers and sisters. They dance, they sway, they hop, they bring their own instruments, they throw themselves absolutely and fully into worship, and, and we get to worship with them just like that. Now, here's, here's my point. I've just described three different places of worship, three completely different worship styles, we don't even speak the same language, but when you walk in the room, you know you're with brothers and sisters in Christ because God does that. Because God supernaturally makes us one. God somehow does that with the Baptist church. It's been said of the Baptist church, if you put 10 of us in a room, you'll have at least 11 different opinions. And, and I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that. So I don't even understand how we get anything done, except here's what God does. God takes people from different economic backgrounds, different academic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different cultures. God brings us together. He makes us His children. And as His family, He supernaturally makes us one. And only God can do that. The church that threatens hell is the church that marches forward together. Now, let's bring all that home. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? Here's what it means. If you're angry at somebody this morning, you're bitter at somebody in this congregation, somebody hurt you, maybe even years ago, maybe even yesterday, maybe even today, Somebody's wounded you, somebody's wounded your family, you're holding on to it, you even go in different directions in this building to avoid talking to somebody. I've seen it happen. If you're holding on to that kind of bitterness and that kind of anger, here's what you're doing. You're making your pain an idol. Because here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if I don't forgive anyone who has hurt me, the Father doesn't forgive me. So I bear the weight of my unwillingness to forgive. And if you're in that state at all this morning, if you're holding on to any of that, if you want to be a part of a church that threatens the enemy, here's what you have to do. You just plain in the power of God have to get over it. But God can help you do that because that's what God does. God supernaturally unites his people. Here's number two. The early church focused more on others than themselves. The early church focused more on others than themselves. Now, I give you just a second to, to fill in the blank, and here's what I want you to do. I want you just to sit back and listen for a minute as I walk you through the book of Acts. I want you to hear what the early church did. 
in chapter 1, they come together in the upper room, and Jesus tells them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So he tells them from the beginning, this is not about you. You're going to take my gospel to where you live and all the way to the ends of the earth. In chapter 2, the Spirit of God falls on them. Peter, the fallen fisherman, becomes the preacher again, and the Spirit of God moves in such a way that thousands of people come to know Jesus. In chapter 3, Peter and John go up to the temple at the hour of prayer, and there they heal a lame man, and Peter preaches the gospel again, and others come to know Christ. In chapter 4, they are, for the first time, told not to preach. They're warned. Persecution begins to set in at just a slight level, and they're warned not to, not to preach. You know what they do? They preached anyway. You know why they did that? Because they were, they were more concerned about people who needed Jesus than they were their own safety. Chapter 5, it's the same drill. They're again arrested and told not to preach. And again, they just keep preaching because they're more concerned that people need to hear about Christ than they are their own lives. In chapter 6, there's a problem in the church. Some widows feel neglected and they want ministered to, and the disciples had to figure out what to do, and here's what they say. You find some men filled with the Holy Spirit, men of good report, and you let them wait on these widows. You let them take care of the tables, and you free us up to keep preaching and praying because we're not going to turn our eyeballs inward. We're here to take the gospel to people who need to hear. In chapter 7, Stephen is martyred. Go with me to chapter 7. I want to show you a text, the last part of chapter 7, verses 59 and 60. I want you to hear the heart of Stephen as he dies. He is being stoned to death. The rocks are falling on him. And watch where his heart is, verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So tell me, where's his heart when he dies? On himself or on others? Not himself. It's on the very people who are killing him, his murderers. He says to God, do not hold this sin against them. I don't know about you. I know myself well enough that I think I would have been praying, Lord, stop them. Or, Lord, get them. Or, Lord, I've just laid out the history of your work. I've just taught the word before them. God, surely you will stop this. But that's not where his heart is. He's willing to die for the gospel. And even as he dies, his heart is on those who are killing him. That's the heart of the early church. We could go on and on. In chapter 8, the gospel goes to Samaria to an Ethiopian. In chapter 9, Saul is converted to be an apostle to the Gentiles and to the Jews. In chapter 10, Peter sees this glorious vision of a sheet coming down, and the gospel then goes to the Gentiles. And the rest of this book is about a church that thinks about others who need to hear that they might get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's the kind of church that threatens hell. Some years ago, I was in a jeep in East Africa, riding across the continent with one of our missionaries. And let me tell you some of of their story. He had moved his family to East Africa, and it wasn't long after they got there that his preschool daughter, just a little thing at the time, became very, very ill. 
In fact, he told me later on that he would sit by her bedside at night and pray, God, please don't take her home tonight. Please let her live. She didn't get better, so they took her to the next neighboring country where they had better medical care. And there the doctors treated her, and again, she, she still did not get better. They finally said, you've got to take her back to the States. You've got to get her back to better medical care. So they brought her, the whole family, back to a, a children's medical center in the southeastern part of our country. And there they treated her, and the, the medication began to set in, and she got better. She got out of the hospital, and the family moved back to East Africa. And we were riding across the continent. I asked him, I said, tell me something. When you were back in the States and your daughter was, had been, you thought, at the point of death and you got her there to have the best medical care in the world and you're there and grandparents are there and families there, did you ever think about staying in the States? Because surely there are all kinds of needs in the States. And I asked the question because I think if it were my child, I would have been very tempted to say, Lord, call me to a church in the U.S., I'll never forget his answer because he answered without a moment's hesitation. He said, Dr. Lawless, we never for a second thought about staying in the States. In fact, on one hand, we prayed that God would heal our daughter. And we cried and we wept over that. And on the other hand, we prayed God send us back to our people. And we cried and we wept over them because we knew they needed the gospel. And we knew that when God called us to the nations, we must go and we must go wherever and we must be willing to pay whatever cost there is to pay, including our lives to get the gospel to people who need Jesus. In fact, they not only went back to East Africa, they sometime later moved to one of the riskiest places in the world to share the gospel. Do you think that family, do you think that couple made hell shake a little bit? Think they did? I think so, because they were willing to give everything, everything that people would know about Jesus. And that's the kind of church that threatens hell. It's not the church that gathers together to seclude ourselves from a world that needs Jesus. Here's what we've done in the North American church. We've made the church a place to retreat from the world, and we gather in our safety, and we gather in our cliques, and we hang out together. When the New Testament picture of the church is not a place to retreat from the world, it is a place to come to get rearmed for the war. We come here that we can go out again. It's again bring it home. When's the last time you told somebody about what Jesus has done in your life? When's the last time your heart broke over a neighbor who doesn't know Christ? A coworker who gives no evidence of knowing Christ? A classmate, a friend? A family member. When's the last time you so grieved over somebody who doesn't know Jesus that all you could do is weep and pray and ask God for the courage to speak the gospel to that person? That's the kind of church that makes hell shake. The early church was supernaturally united, focused more on others than themselves. Here's number three. The early church knew that holiness matters. The early church knew that holiness matters. Let me show you this in Acts chapter 5. It's a tough, tough verse. The early church knew that holiness matters. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
It's a difficult verse to read. It's a difficult verse to understand. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And then look at verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. You keep reading in this chapter, and you'll find that his wife is next confronted, and she too will drop dead on the spot, and they are buried together. And it's a hard word for us. Members of the early church, they lie about their offering, and God strikes them dead. It's hard. Frankly, we better thank God he doesn't do the same to all of us. What's going on here? Here's what we see at pivotal points in God's history with his people. There are times when, particularly at beginning stages of eras, at beginning stages of the most significant parts of history, God deliberately and dramatically shows us what he expects from us, and that is that we're to be different and we're to be holy. And so this is the beginning of the early church. These are the early days of the early church. And God wants them to know from the beginning, He will not tolerate sin in the camp. He expects them to be different. He expects them to think differently, to act differently, to walk differently, to talk differently, to raise their children differently, to love their spouses differently, to minister to the widows and the orphans differently. He expects them to walk like Jesus. And when sin begins to worm its way into this early church, God takes this drastic step to say to them from the beginning, I will not tolerate that. You read the rest of the New Testament, and here's what you see. Continual calls for the church to be godly, including including times where the Bible teaches us that there are times when we have to exclude people from membership that they might recognize the seriousness of their sin and come back to God. That's how serious God is about this. But you know what? I think in the North American church, one of the reasons we don't threaten the devil is that we tolerate living like the devil. God still expects his church to be holy. God still expects us to be godly. Here's, here's the picture. Pam and I are two of the neatest, cleanest people you will ever meet in your life. I promise you. In fact, if someone were to psychoanalyze us, we'd probably have a problem. If I were to come to your house today for lunch and wash my hands in your sink before I ever leave whatever room I'm in, I'm going to find a towel somewhere and I'm going to clean your sink out completely. Because my grandma taught me a long time ago, you clean the sink out every time you use it, you never have scum build up. And she so drilled that into me that to this day at age 57, I do it every place I go. I've traveled all over the world. I've cleaned sinks on several continents um, <laughs> because it's just who I am. Pam's equally clean, if not more. Well, 
years ago, we got ready to sell a house in Ohio. Because we were moving from Ohio to Louisville, Kentucky to teach it at Southern Seminary. We put our house on the market. We knew it would sell quickly. It had to because there was no cleaner house in all of Ohio. So we were sure. In fact, a young couple came through day one. They looked at our house. They said, we can move in here tomorrow. We want this house. They signed the contract. We praised the Lord. God answered our prayer overnight. It was great. Except that our contract had a little clause that said we had to have a home inspection. So a home inspector came to our house. He looked at our house. He went underneath our house to our crawl space, to which we had not gone often. Let me tell you what he found there. Termites everywhere. And water that had been sitting under our house so long that it had literally rotted our plywood floors unbeknownst to us. In fact, he came back upstairs. He said, let me show you what's going on. He came back upstairs, pulled the the carpet back, spotless though it was. He pulled it back. He took his finger and he stuck it through our plywood floor. That's how wet they were. We had no idea. In fact, let me tell you the rest of the story, just how gross it gets. Before we were able to fix that, is this okay, Pam? I I probably should have asked before then. In between the time we learned that and we were able to get it fixed, we got up one morning, our floors were so wet, we found a mushroom growing through our carpet. (laughs) And for for clean people, it can't get any worse than that. In order to sell our house, here's what we had to do. We had to bring in a company. They took hydraulic jacks and lifted our entire house off of its foundation, fixed all the water damage underneath there, replaced all the plywood treated lumber, and set it back down. It cost us thousands of dollars to sell our house. Now, what's, what's my point here? Had you come to our house and looked from the floor up, I assure you it was spotless. But go underneath where nobody's looking. And you'll find termites and water that are rotting the very foundation of our house. You see, you and I can come to this place. We can come to this church, to this building. You can come with brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can look as godly and as holy and as pure and as righteous as you want to look. Every one of us in this room can play that game. Yes or no? Every one of us can. But what matters this morning is not that. What matters this morning, if you want to be a church that threatens hell, what matters is what's going on in your crawl space. What's going on where nobody sees? What's that hidden sin in your life that you're holding on to? And hear me say this, because God makes us one. Your hidden, unforsaken, unconfessed sin weakens the very foundation of this entire congregation. You do not sin in isolation. So I plead with you this morning, because I long to see churches that make a dent in the darkness. I plead with you, if there's hidden sin in the crawl space, clean it out. Get real with one of your pastors. Be honest with somebody. Break the enemy's hold in your life. Recognize with the early church that holiness matters. Now, let's, let's move on. Last point. The early church was supernaturally united. They focused more on others than themselves. They knew that holiness matters. The last point is this. The early church prayed together. The early church prayed together. Let me again ask you just to sit back and let me walk you through the book just a little bit. 
Acts chapter 1, they come together and they devote themselves to, to prayer. In chapter 2, we read that they are committed to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In chapter 3, it's during the hour of prayer that Peter and John heal a lame man. In chapter 4, we read, they pray, and they pray with such power that the very building they're meeting in is shaken under the power of God. In chapter 6, the disciples say, you let us preach and pray. In chapter 7, Stephen dies with prayer on his lips. In chapter 8, they pray as the Samaritans receive the Spirit. In chapter 9, Ananias, Saul, praying at different times as God converts Saul. In chapter 10, it's in a time of prayer that Peter gets his vision. I could go on and on and on and on. This early church was born in prayer. They lived in prayer, and they died with prayer on their lips. Now, why so? Here's why. Number one, they love Jesus. When you love somebody, you will talk to somebody. They loved Jesus so much that they wanted to talk to him. If you tell me this morning you love Jesus, but you don't talk to Jesus, you don't love Jesus like you say you do. Love makes us talk. The second reason they prayed that way is because they knew they were dependent on God. They knew they couldn't do what God called them to do. They were nobodies to get the gospel to the nations, and they needed the power of God. And they knew when they prayed together, they had to lay their agenda down. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about their power. It wasn't about their position. It wasn't about their prestige. It wasn't about their name. It was about Jesus and getting the name of Jesus to the nations. Let me bring all this together with, with an illustration of that. My first seminary class that I taught now 22 years ago, I gathered in a room with a number of guys, eight or ten guys, I don't remember the, the number, this was a class that we, we taught for eight hours a day, all in one week, five days. So we began every day with worship. One of the guys played his guitar, we sang together, and then we prayed as we launched into the lectures. On this particular day, the guys are out here at their, at their tables. They're in a square around us, and I'm, I'm right here as the prof, and we had worship together. We began to pray. And as we started praying, I heard some commotion, and so I wondered what's going on in the classroom. As the, as the prof in the room, I opened one eye to see what's happening, and Here's what I saw. I watched as one of the guys pushed his chair back from his table and he got on his knees and he began to pray aloud, Lord, forgive me. Lord, make me the man that you want me to be. And another one of the guys on the other side of the room pushed his chair back and he began to confess his sin and say, God, help me. And one by one, they hit their knees and they began to pray aloud. And then I watched as they pushed their chairs all the way back to the wall. And one by one, these young men got on the carpet. They buried their face in the carpet, praying to God, weeping over their sin, asking God to empower them, asking God to make them the men that God wanted them to be. And I watch as they lay on the floor before God, asking for God to touch them. I took my class notes for that day. I laid them aside. I pushed my chair back, and I got on the floor with them, and we stayed there until God was done with us. To this day, I can't tell you what happened, but I can tell you this, God showed up that day. And here's what I see as I look around the world. The churches that threaten hell are churches that march forward on their knees. They're not the churches that think they're something. They're the churches that get on their face and say, God, I'm yours. And my challenge to you is this. 
be that kind of church. I long for God to raise up that kind of church. And it's your call. You have the option. Be like every other church that's not doing much at all. Or become a church that makes hell shake. And here's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that I will hear in North Carolina of what God's doing here. And the demons would say, Jesus I know and Paul I know and those people in that church in Texas are getting under my skin. Let's pray together.